Alex Hiro here, and you are listening to my podcast, Popcorn and Politics. It's been a while, three long months in quarantine, stressing over the pandemic, racism, summer courses, and college applications. With all that going on, it was easy to completely forget that entire elections were occurring during that time. Not only the Democratic and Republican presidential primaries, of course, but state house and state senate elections as well. While we were filming TikToks in our living rooms, Jasmine Crockett of Dallas, Texas was running and winning her campaign for state house. Now, I met Jasmine Crockett back in January before all this coronavirus madness. We talked about politics, my podcast, and a bit about her platform, but I didn't get to really, you know, sit down with her and talk. So I asked her to come on the podcast and she said, yeah. Jasmine Crockett, you are on the podcast. How how are you? Um, it's a really great, busy time. Um, you would think that once the campaign ends that you're good to go, but the transition is very difficult, especially um, considering the fact that we're dealing with COVID-19. So it's a lot of extra work that it wouldn't normally be. Yeah, so speaking of COVID-19... What does your kind of coronavirus altered slash quarantine routine look like now? And how does it differ to how you were living, campaigning, and working before? As the state rep um, people have lots of requests and demands of you. Yeah. Um, so I am still pretty outside. Um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not sheltered in place very often, whether it's um, trying to find sources PPE, or whether it's helping people with their unemployment, um, we're, we're still pretty active, uh, unfortunately. The only thing that's really changed is my work life. Um, that tends to be via Zoom, so lots of my court hearings are via Zoom instead of being via um, in-person hearings. Yeah, so you started your journey to the State House a while ago. When do you think and why did you decide, you know, I want to serve in public office, I'm going to run for state house? Was there a moment? There wasn't um, a specific moment. There were a series of events that made me say, you've got to do something more than what's going on right now. Um, and, you know, with my experience being a criminal defense attorney, as well as school rights lawyer, from the criminal defense side, it was kind of frustrating that so many black and brown people are still going to prison due to marijuana, where, um, you know, we know that in a number of states, people are becoming millionaires and billionaires off of marijuana. In the state of Texas, we were still incarcerating, and I think we were, we still are incarcerating people for that. And so it became frustrating because that's just what the law is. Yeah. No matter how good of an attorney you may be, you can't change what the law is. It is what it is. Unless you become a lawmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was one of the deals. And then um, just the level of police brutality I've had to deal with. And knowing that um, if we were to set certain standards across the board, maybe some black lives could be saved. Um, so it's just a combination of the two things that I do most often. What are your next steps uh, for District 100? And so my district is majority minority. It's 
40% black, 40% Hispanic, and 20% white. Um, and so the first issue that I'm having is, number one, um, not my first issue, but four um, of my zip codes in my district, which we have 150 house districts in the state of Texas, four of my zip codes are the highest incarcerated zip codes in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so criminal justice reform draws you specifically to those policy issues? I think for me, overall, as a civil rights lawyer, I'm about equity. And these are two really big areas that the inequities are quite obvious. Um, And so I think that as a Black attorney that's going to be a Black lawmaker, uh, it's important for me to, to never lose sight of who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and how I got here and the opportunities that I was able to benefit from. And that was because people came before me and opened those doors. And I think that it's my responsibility to make sure that I'm making Texas a more equitable state. For sure. So you mentioned just criminal justice reform and healthcare as kind of your main topics. Do you have any smaller overlooked, per se, policies or aspects of your platform that you're also really passionate about? Um, everything with me is equity. So if anything, I would say maybe something that's not discussed as much is making sure that black businesses um, have opportunities as relates to earning contracts with the state, making sure that the state is um, guaranteeing that minority participation isn't something that they talk about, but they actually practice. Um, and or LGBTQ rights um, yeah. and the overlap within criminal justice, um, making sure that trans men and trans women um, are, are treated adequately and make sure that they are housed in a way in which um, they are not put at a huge risk. Mm-hmm. Um, or mental health. Mental health is another one that is mentioned on my website. Um, it's a big issue for me. It's an even bigger issue in light of COVID-19. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. so there's always a lack of resources um, that come from the feds as well as state government for mental and I think that we're going to have to prioritize that, but I don't know if that kind of falls under healthcare. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I really want to dive into kind of the specifics of your platform. I definitely want to start with voter suppression. Yourself and a lot of other Southern activists and politicians have outlined it as an issue, but how do you plan to work at eradicating it? 
Could you just break down, you know, what that is and how it affects people economically and how you plan to aid that situation? Yeah, so when it comes to the bail system, um, we consistently see that black and brown uh, people or, or people just of a lower socioeconomic um, means sure. are being disproportionately affected by the bail system. Because if I'm rich and I get charged with theft and get a $1,000 bond, I can afford that thousand dollar bond. But if I'm poor and I'm struggling and that's the reason that I was incarcerated for this theft in the first place, then I'm just stuck in jail. You see a higher rate of conviction yeah. for those that are from lower socioeconomic classes because they can't afford to get out of jail and oftentimes they feel pressured to just go ahead and plead. We also see if they lose their homes, their cars, their jobs um, because they're unable to get out of jail. And a lot of times they've been living either check to check or actually been living behind each check. Um, and so if you are truly saying that our justice system uh, includes a presumption of innocence, yeah. your innocence is almost lost and you can't afford to post bail. Um, so we need to make sure that we have a few triggers in our system. If a person is sitting in jail for certain amount of time and has not been able to afford bail. Um, we have a system in place right now. I want to shorten the time period. Um, probably to um, then a person is entitled to what we call a personal recognizance bond, where they just get released um, by themselves without paying money. Uh, if for some reason they're unable to afford bail uh, on certain non-violent um, low-level offenses. I think that that would decrease the number of people that are consistently entering pleas just because they need to get out because they're about to lose everything. Yeah. 
But speaking of just the criminal justice system at large, I absolutely cannot conclude this conversation without talking about an issue that's been fresh on everyone's minds since early June or July, and that's police brutality. The Austin Police Department APD is a big culprit of the brutality. The Dallas Police Department, not so much, but the violence violence is still there. In June, both Austin and Dallas constituents were calling for a defunding of the police. Do you agree with that, the defunding or reallocating of some of police funds? And do you have a plan to attack police brutality at large head on? I absolutely agree with defunding the police. Um, And I'm I'm glad that you mentioned and reallocated because that's pretty much what the conversation is. Uh, We've seen in Dallas that we've had mentally ill people that law enforcement came out and killed when they were coming out to kind of help because they were potentially manic at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's definitely ways to reroute funds um, into things like social services. Also, Dallas, you know, there's, there's one thing for the law, there's another thing for the morality uh, of a situation. And so when we look at Bolton John, who was killed in the home while he was eating ice cream by a Dallas police officer, Dallas, the city of Dallas was released from that litigation. That family um, cannot recover any money whatsoever from the city of Dallas. Because the law doesn't allow for it. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's morally right. And so instead of investing more money into robots and tanks um, so that you can blow up citizens such as Micah, who uh, allegedly killed the five officers that were killed um, in Dallas on July 7th, that's about four years ago now, I think mm-hmm. 2016, um, you know, they, they blew them up with some random technology and there was this bomb robot and that kind of stuff and you know it's the first time I think the only time in uh, U.S. history that we've used that type of deal on a civilian mm. uh, in this manner so you know we could kind of divert funds from you know having that type of instrumentality and rerouted it to you know the families of victims such as Elton John um because as, as a city, I think the city would agree and citizens of the city would agree that from a moral standpoint, Dallas PD owes that family something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that the law is set up, there's nothing uh, for them to recover. So I think there's a lot of uh, ways that we can rebound money that can bring about healing. Uh, from a state standpoint, when I'm looking at it, legislation that would potentially require that municipalities and law enforcement agencies carry insurance on their individual officers, uh, say, in a minimum amount of $5 million. That way, if there's a situation like what's going on with the Wilson John family, there's still at least a $5 million policy on that officer. In addition to that, um, just like if you're a bad driver, your insurance premium goes up to the extent that either somebody decides that they don't want to pay it anymore or they decide um, to actually kick you off. I think that's another way for us to get rid of bad officers is if they are required to carry insurance and all these claims start coming in on a certain officer. I think that it may get too expensive for it to make sense to keep some of those bad officers. But the backdoor way of starting to get rid of some of them as well as um, what we saw with Breonna Taylor. 
um, and a no-knock warrant. I think we need to reevaluate the legality of that um, and potentially outlaw them completely, as well as what we've seen with many of our protesters. Um, I ended up representing Brandon Thane out of Dallas, Texas, who was shot with a non-lethal, a less-than-lethal projectile by Dallas Police Department and lost his eye. I think that we need to outlaw um, the use of those in general for the purpose of crowd control. Absolutely. Lastly, I just want to know, what are you most excited and optimistic about just moving forward? Um, hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, what am I most excited about? I think I'm most excited for just a different type of leadership in the state of Texas. Yeah. Um, I really get my energy and my drive from the people. And so I'm excited to see how um, my constituency responds to the way that we govern ourselves um, in this administration and and see how many people become inspired um, to strive for a similar type of government and decide that they too want to run for office um, and they're unafraid of being challenged by the establishment um, and they believe that they can really do it. So I think I'm just excited for a new wave of leadership and uh, just new leaders overall emerging. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anything that you'd like to say to the listeners to conclude the episode? I just like to say that, you know, I didn't get here by myself. I mean, it takes all of us. And so I want to encourage those of you that think you may want to be involved in politics or think that you may want to do something for your community um, to get involved. Find somebody that you like and get involved in their campaign. My campaign was truly run by young people. Everyone on my campaign is younger than me, and I'm 39. It's truly unheard of in modern-day politics. Um, Usually it's the opposite, where everybody tends to be a lot older. But young people are truly leading the movement that's going on in this country, whether it's the protests um, with George Floyd or whether it's um, the political activism that we're seeing overall. And so I want you guys to stay engaged. I want you guys to get even more involved. Um, and I want you guys to change the world. Thank you.